y'all know I can't let this World Series championship go without a good sermon illustration. And so uh, after game seven ended in Los Angeles and the Astros, our Houston Astros, uh, celebrated on uh, Dodger Stadium's uh, field, which is just the best. Um, I think it's even better to win out of town than in town because you just rub it in their faces a little bit. And, uh, and so they celebrated. There were so many storylines that were unfolding in that celebration. You had Carlos Correa, like, you know, uh, proposing to Miss Texas, and you had, uh, you, you had, I don't know who I felt, uh, you know, I, I felt better for, they're, they're, it's like a match made in heaven, right, baseball heaven, and then you've got uh, uh, Charlie Morton, who was a cast off, nobody wanted him, and now he's the game-winning pitcher in game seven of the World Series, he couldn't even talk through his tears, you got Carlos Beltran, who, uh, it was his last game, and he knew it, and, you know, he's going out on top, my favorite moment, though, was captured in this image. And the guy looking toward the camera is a man named Evan Gaddis. He's uh, kind of a role player on the Astros this year. He's a backup catcher and a part-time designated hitter. Um, Twelve years ago, he was a prodigy, a baseball prodigy here in Texas near Dallas. And he had all kinds of college scholarship offers like Rice University wanted him to come play here in Houston. Uh, Texas A&M wanted him to come and and, uh, catch at Texas A&M. And he turned down all his college scholarships because he was deeply depressed. He was struggling with an anxiety disorder that led him to drug use, a nasty drug habit. And so Evan left home and told his dad never to talk to him about baseball again. And he kind of went off the grid for a couple years and he hitchhiked across the country and he took odd jobs. One of the odd jobs he took was as a janitor in Colorado and Evan Gaddis, uh, 11, 12 years ago was a janitor somewhere in Colorado. And he, uh, he also, uh, you know, wound up just falling down on really hard times and was begging on the streets of New York, among other places, begging for food, begging for money. Then he found God. He found God in California of all places and, uh, and he ended up uh, going to a small uh, college in Northwest Texas and, uh, and sh- sh- really shined on the baseball field. And uh, the Atlanta Braves drafted him um, 10 years ago. And one of the first calls that he got, uh, congratulatory calls that he got uh, after the draft was from the Atlanta Braves catcher at the time, Brian McCann, who is now the Houston Astros um, starting catcher. And uh, Brian McCann, from the very beginning, really took Evan Gaddis under his wing and tried to keep him on the straight and narrow. He knew about Evan's, you know, struggles. And, and Brian McCann basically said, you know, this is how you walk the path of righteousness as, you know, fame and fortune come your way. And so uh, 12 years ago, he was struggling with all this anxiety and depression. 10 years ago, he was drafted. And today, he and Ryan McCann are, uh, are both on the same team, world champions of the Houston Astros. Now, I know half the room right now is just rolling your eyes thinking, why did I come to church to hear about baseball? It, well, just get over it. If you don't like that, then just go find another church. I'm just kidding. So the, I love how sometimes sports can mirror real life. Because you may not be an addict, you may not be hitchhacking across the country, you may not be deeply depressed, you may not be really anxious, although I bet everyone here has some of that going on. Anxiety, worry, self-doubt, depression, self-hatred. At one point in his life, uh, 11 years ago, Evan Gaddis said, all I could think about was killing myself. And now he's, now he's a champion, y'all. It's crazy to me sometimes how sports can reflect real life and the struggles that we're all going through every day. Nathan, who plays the guitar here and sings and leads worship, um, he comes to my house once a week to teach my kids guitar. And uh, this week he was teaching my little seven-year-old Cohen uh, how to play Silent Night, and him and Cohen were 
playing Silent Night and singing together in my living room. It was pretty sweet, actually, in one of those moments. But there's this line in Silent Night. It says, round young virgin, mother and child. And anyway, after Nathan left, um, my son goes to his mom, my wife, Gio, and says, Mom, what's a virgin? And, my, and Gio says, go ask your father. And I did, what any, I did what any responsible modern dad would do. I got my iPad and I locked myself in the bathroom so nobody could find me in there for like 10 minutes until he forgot that he was wanting to know what a virgin was. Um, we say that word virgin a lot around Christmas seasons, and I think it, maybe it makes you blush, maybe it makes you chuckle or whatever, um, but we don't really talk about why and what we mean when we say virgin as an adjective in front of Mary, because that's our favorite adjective for the word Mary. We don't say the heroic Mary or the courageous Mary, the daredevil Mary. I mean, I, think, I, wish, we sh- I wish we would. All those things apply, but we pretty much just boil it down to the virgin Mary. But what do we mean when we say that? I think typically, historically, we've looked at that word virgin as just physical, bodily form of of purity, right? So we mean that Mary was untouched, unsullied, I guess is the word, or, uh, or, you know, she was pure physically or bodily. And that really caught on with um, early generations of the church, especially third, fourth, fifth century, when everybody thought that the act that makes you not a virgin, it's Children's Church Sabbath, so I'm trying to be really careful here, but like kids are in the room more than usual. So that, that, that people thought that was inherently sinful or dirty, you know? And so um, there was this idea that was thought up, really. It was an invention later. Some of y'all that grew up Catholic have heard this doctrine, the doctrine of the perpetual virginity of Mary. That Mary wasn't just a virgin before Jesus. Mary stayed a virgin her whole life. And that Jesus' siblings, mentioned in the New Testament, were Joseph's kids from a previous marriage. And their mom had died, and Joseph was an old man who married Mary, basically as an act of charity, to bring her in to the family, right? So he never touched her. They didn't have, like, husband and wife uh, relationship, right? That's all fabricated in the efforts of keeping Mary a virgin perpetually. Because if we're going to venerate or revere Mary, we want her to be, you know, pure, untouched, unsullied, whatever. Now, I believe in the virgin birth. I don't believe in it like that, though. I believe in the virgin birth. I don't necessarily believe that that kind of purity is the most important message behind that word. I think there's some other very important things we can learn about Mary by virtue of her virginity that matter way more than what we normally thought of as being pure or untouched or whatever. In fact, some of that stuff, if it's played out in local churches, can be very damaging to people that aren't that. Y'all following me? Okay. So I think there's two things especially of note when we talk about the virginity of Mary that are more important than that stuff. I think first of all, the fact that Mary was a virgin just tells us about her age. We know that she was very young. She was somewhere between a girl and a woman. She was becoming a woman, probably 13 or 14 years old at the time that the events we're about to read happened. So a very young woman. And, uh, and, and that's kind of what the first thing that that, that word virgin tells us. And, and this kind of fits Mary into the, the overall biblical narrative of God calling unlikely people to do these crazy things. So over and over again, God doesn't call preachers like me who are proud of ourselves for knowing things like and we stand up and talk and this is my reward. This is my only calling. God calls ordinary, everyday, average people who have jobs out in the world or people that you would never think would do high and mighty things. That's who he calls. He calls people that think they're too young to serve him, people that think they're too old to serve him, people that think they're not religious enough to serve him. Throughout the Bible and throughout history, that's who God calls. And the same is true 
true for Mary, being 13 or 14 years old. God trusted her. Any of y'all know a 13 or 14-year-old girl? That's all I'm going to say. But God trusted her (laughs) to carry salvation and deliver salvation to the world and raise up that little boy to become Jesus, the Jesus we know today. God trusted Mary, though she was a virgin. The second thing that I think matters more than the physical bodily purity stuff is that by virtue of the fact the Bible calls Mary a virgin, it tells us something about where she was in life. So her life stage, right? So like many girls her age, um, uh, she was ready for marriage. Her physically, uh, you know, culturally, she was ready. She was sort of on the market, so to speak. And, and she was looking forward to her wedding like every young girl does. She was looking forward to her new life with her husband. She was looking forward to their house. She was looking forward to having a house of her own. She was looking forward to raising her kids, filling that house with kids. Mary was a girl with hopes and dreams and a vision for her life. She knew what her life was going to look like. The Bible tells us she was from Nazareth, small town girl. Any small town people in the house? I'm a small-town person. So we can imagine that Mary, being a small-town girl, probably had dreams of raising her family just like she had been raised. That's what you do in small towns, in the friendly, safe confines of family and friends, people that you know, raising your kids together in a close-knit community like Nazareth. Nazareth probably had about 200 or less people based on archaeological studies. So Nazareth was Red Lick size. That's where I'm from, Red Lick, Texas. Between 150 and 200 people um, when Mary was young there. I want you to keep all of those things in mind as we read her story today and just try, if you've heard this a thousand times, try to hear it with fresh ears today. We're going to be in Luke chapter 1. So you can get your Bibles if, you're, if you are a gold star Christian today and brought your Bible, or uh, you can get your study guides out or your Bible app on your phone, or obviously you can follow along on the screens. Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 37. Luke 1, 26, 37. Here we go. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, we'll learn more about Elizabeth in a second, just hang on. God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. So I think it's clear getting pregnant before marriage was not part of Mary's five-year plan. It was not what she envisioned. I think this was clearly a wrench in her plans for her life. This changed everything, and yet she seemed to just kind of go along with it in the presence of the angel. 
I think, though, after the angel left and Mary faced real life, I mean, sometimes you have to read between the lines of the Bible stories to understand what really must have happened because after the angel left, Mary was left to her own devices to make the announcement to the rest of the community. So Mary had to go and tell her parents that she was pregnant at 14, unmarried. Mary had to tell her religious leaders. Mary had to tell her friends. Mary had to tell the rest of her family. And I don't, I don't know how that fear and shame must have felt. Unless you've been in Mary's place, I don't know how any of us can imagine the fear she must have felt at 13 or 14 years of age, y'all. Small towns can be especially difficult. Small town culture can be especially cruel once the rumor mill starts flying, man. It, you can get labeled for the rest of your life. And, and, and we know that those rumors were flying. My mom, um, who I love so dearly, my mom, who many of you know, Kathy Ann, uh, grew up in the same small town I grew up in. And she faced a similar situation that Mary faced. She was 15, not 14 or 13. She was 15 when she got pregnant. And, uh, you know, she had to tell the same people that Mary had to tell. Now, her Nazareth was just, you know, in east, northeast Texas, about the same size town. And so she was pregnant, and I'm sure this was extremely hard on her. She still bears the scars of that season of her life, y'all. She was pulled out of the school, the only school she'd ever known. She was forced to stop going to that school, and, and she was sequestered to some other weird school where they put pregnant girls to keep them out of sight and out of mind. She was told not to come back to her church youth group for a time. Many of her friends stopped calling her, probably because their parents told them to stop calling her because they didn't want their kids to be poorly influenced by my mother, who if you know my mother, man, y'all don't talk about my mama that way. You know, like, I love her so much, and she's the closest thing to an angel I've ever known, including my wife and daughter. I love y'all, but man, my mama, she's my mama, and I love her. How could anybody be mean to her? How could anybody kick her out or ostracize or isolate her? But that's what happened to my mom. It was awful, even though... My mom had a rational explanation for the bump on her belly, even though she could easily point to my father, who was the culprit, I guess, in the eyes of her parents probably. But, but like, he, he was there, and he admitted it was him. It was still a scandal, but at least it was credible. And at least my mom and dad got married right away, and they had my sister. You know, my mom got all kinds of advice about what to do with that baby, you know, abortion, adoption, everything, and she kept the baby. My parents got married against all the odds. They got married. They've made it. You know, they had my sister. They had me four years later. As hard as it must have been for them, I can't imagine how hard it was for Mary in that season of her life. Really, if you read between the lines, Mary, who had no rational explanation. So when her parents and her boyfriend, Joseph, poor Joseph, and her friends and her religious leaders came and said, how did you get pregnant? All Mary could say was, I, I can't explain it, but God did it to me, y'all. God did it. Do y'all think anybody in that town believed her? No, of course not. Of course not. This is real life we're talking about. Of course nobody believed her story. Of course everybody looked at Joseph like, hmm, where were you? You know, <laughs> and Joseph's like, it wasn't me, you know. And, but, but everybody, everybody doubted her story. This is what happened next. We'll pick up right where we left off. Luke chapter 1, verses 39 to 45. This happens right after that, y'all. So this is what happens next. In those days, so right then, Mary set out. And went with haste. She went with haste in a hurry to a Judean town in the hill country where she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the child leaped in her womb. 
And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why has this happened to me, that the mother of my Lord comes to me? For as soon as I heard the sound of your greeting, the child of my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what has been spoken to her by the Lord. And before we get to the happy stuff at the end, I love all that, blessed are you, and blessed am I, and blessed. And before we get to there, let's start at the beginning of that story and be honest about what just happened. There's no way around what I'm about to tell you. Mary ran away. Point blank, no doubt, Mary ran away from home. She ran away. In those days, she went with haste. Didn't even pack a bag, y'all. She grabbed her toothbrush and she hit the road. Like, that was it. And she went out on her own to where Elizabeth lived. And if you study the geography of the region, you would know that from Mary's town to Elizabeth's town, a nine-day walk so Mary goes out on her own, 13, 14-year-old Mary, on foot, traveling day and night through the wilderness of the desert of Judea, a place she had no business being by herself. In a, the first trimester of her pregnancy, y'all, ladies, the first trimester of her first pregnancy, and she's traveling on her own, racing across the desert. Why? Just to get to the place, the home, into the arms of the only person who might understand her plight, the only one who might accept and empathize with her, Elizabeth, who had been given this miraculous pregnancy of her own. Y'all, don't think for a second that when she told her parents that they weren't shocked, when she told her mama that her mama didn't cry and put the dishes away with a little more oomph that night, don't think there wasn't a little more noise in the kitchen that night. Don't think for a second that when she told her daddy that he said, I'm not mad, sweetie, I'm just disappointed. Oh, my God, Dad. No, like that's even worse. Just be mad. You know, don't think for a second. That when she told Joseph that he didn't say, I'm out. We know that he did. He said, I'm out. I'm sorry, but I'm out. Reading Matthew's gospel, the version of this story, Joseph says, I can't. I'm out. I'm sorry. And people spread rumors about this girl her whole life. We know this. Historically, we've got evidence. Outside the Bible even, we've got evidence of the rumors people spread about Mary. People said Mary was promiscuous. There are rumors, documented rumors from the first, second centuries that Mary had slept around that she shacked up with some Roman soldier named Pantera, and that Pantera was Jesus' real daddy. That was a real rumor going around during Mary's life. Y'all, she faced these rumors all the time. She faced these lies all the time. And listen, sometimes, especially when you're vulnerable, especially when sometimes when you're young, when you're unsteady on your feet, it's real easy to start believing the lies about yourself. It's real easy to start believing what other people say about you or what maybe your, the voices in your own head say about you instead of believing who God says you are. I think Mary was right on the brink, right on the verge. I think that's why she went running to Elizabeth, pregnant, exhausted, afraid, and alone, running to the only person who would understand. Elizabeth was in her 50s or 60s. She was Mary's elder by several decades. She was six months pregnant with John the Baptist, the guy we talked about last week when we talked about uh, this war between God and Satan. We talked about crazy, prophetic John the Baptist. And Elizabeth welcomed Mary with such unexpected grace. Have you ever been welcomed that way? You ever have somebody in your life 
when your life's a wreck and you're a total disaster and you walk into their home and they're like, oh my gosh, you're the best thing that's ever happened to me. Like, you're the greatest. I'm so glad that you're here. You are wonderful. You are awesome. You have somebody like that in your life? Mary's life was a mess. Everyone rejected her. Everyone did not believe, no one believed Mary's story. So she races across the desert for nine days. She stumbles into Mary's home, to Elizabeth's home, and Elizabeth goes, my God, thank God you're here. You are blessed. I'm blessed. We're blessed. Let's have a party. And Mary's like, what? Me? Let me tell you, everyone here needs an Elizabeth in their life. Everyone here needs an encourager. The person you can go to when everything else hits the fan and you don't know who you are anymore. You don't know what you're doing in this life. You're ashamed of everything you've done. Everybody needs an Elizabeth whose home you can stumble into and be treated like you're the king or the queen, like you are so blessed. You need to be reminded. When life is dark, when the darkness is closing in, you need to be reminded that it's all going to be okay if you just keep walking with God. That's what Elizabeth does for Mary. She reminds her it's going to be okay. You're going to be blessed. Just keep walking with God. Everyone here needs someone like that. Evan Gaddis had Brian McCann. My mom had my dad. Mary had Elizabeth. And who do you have? If you don't have a mentor, this is a little bit of an aside in the sermon, but I'm serious. If you don't have a mentor, don't just be satisfied with that. Don't be resigned to that fact. Get one. Pray for one. Ask for one. Write it on your connect card. Uh, you know, we say it all the time. Like, just come to us. Come to us about it. There's plenty of people here who are seasoned in their faith. They may not, some of them are, are, are seasoned in their years as well. We got some, some uh, you know, seasoned people at the story who would be more than happy to mentor you and encourage you along the way. Everybody needs something like that. Otherwise, without a mentor, you will find yourself fighting the battles of your life alone. And that's exactly what the enemy wants. Imagine if Mary had not gone to Elizabeth's house. Where would she have gone? She would have been alone with her doubts and her questions. That, that's exactly where the enemy wants us when the darkness closes in. He wants to isolate you. Sometimes your best weapon against the enemy's attack is to refuse to be isolated, y'all. Find a mentor. Find someone you can share this journey with. Find someone who will encourage you and will never leave you alone because we are all engaged in a spiritual battle and you cannot fight this battle on your own. The passage we've been reading um, in, from the New Testament that's about this spiritual battle is from Ephesians 6. It's the passage about the full armor of God. I'm going to read it every week, and I feel like it's going to get really stale if I am the only one that reads it. So I've been asking all of our services this morning to, to read this passage along with me um, as we are going to read the same thing we read last week, adding a little verse at the end for today's piece of armor. Would you all entertain me and just read with me, please? All right, let's read. Finally, be strong in the Lord. And in his mighty power, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place. Y'all, I get really tired of the images of Mary that we often pass around at Christmas. Sweet, serene, soft-spoken. Y'all, I do not believe that is who Mary was. I believe Mary was a 
warrior. I believe she was a fighter. I believe she needed Elizabeth to help bring that out in her so that she could believe in herself. But even at the ripe young age of 13, 14 years old, I believe she was able to stand by the power of God's spirit to stand against every doubt, against every doubter, against every rumor, against every whisper in her own mind to believe that what God said about her was true, that she was blessed, that she was blessed among women. That is how she could choose to go to war against the darkness because Elizabeth reminded Mary that God believed in her and called her righteous. Now, righteousness is an important concept that's often just boiled down to religion. And if you're not religious, you're not righteous. I Forget that. Just forget everything you've ever thought about what it means to be righteous. Because the way the Bible treats, especially the New Testament treats, righteousness is all about your relationship. So to be righteous is to be in a right place in your relationship with God. You know when you're in a right place in any other relationship. You know when you and your spouse are in a right place with each other. You know when you're not. You know when you and a friend or you and your kid or you and your parent are righteous in your relationship to each other. That's just what it means. There's no friction between you. There's nothing coming between you. To be righteous just means to walk with God blameless and pure. Elizabeth is trying to remind Mary that God, through the angel, has said she's righteous, that she's walking with God, that she's in a right relationship with God, and he's going to use her. And all these rumors and lies are trying to convince her otherwise. Mary had a choice to make. Do I believe those rumors and lies, or do I believe God? Is God a liar, or is everyone else in my life right now a liar? And thanks to Elizabeth, Mary chose to believe God. I think that's why, uh, I think that's why it's called the breastplate of righteousness. Because when you know, when you know where you stand with God, when you're not worried that God's angry with you or upset with you or that you've disappointed God, when you're not just beating yourself up, I'm, whoa, a sinner, uh, you know, when you're not just, just punishing yourself for your past, when you choose to believe that you are who God has said that you are, y'all, that's freedom. That's what it means to be righteous. And when, when, you, when you are in that frame of mind, you have a, it's like a breastplate that won't allow the enemy's attacks to get to your heart. The enemy still attacks and it kind of knocks you back here and there, knocks you off balance, might hurt your extremities, but man, it cannot penetrate your heart because you know where you stand with God, your righteousness before God is sure to you. So I'm gonna tell you before we leave today where you stand with God. Some of you are gonna hear this as a very presumptuous thing for me to say because you're gonna be like, he doesn't know me. He doesn't, we've never met. We've never had coffee or he's never pried into my personal life. He doesn't know my secrets. He doesn't know my darkness. Doesn't know my beliefs. But I'm gonna tell you what the New Testament, what God's word says about where you stand with God. It has very little to do with you. It has everything to do with God. Righteousness is about what God sees in you. Not what you see in yourself. And not what anybody else sees in you. Righteousness is about the strength of God and not the strength within you or the weakness within you. Righteousness is about who God says you are. And as far as God is concerned, I'm here to tell you that he made you for a reason. 
He made you with a plan in mind. You are not an accident. You are not a cosmic coincidence. There is a purpose for which you were created to be enlisted in this fight of light against the darkness. Every single person here has a part to play in that fight. Every person here has a role, a calling. If you will just say yes to that and just believe that you are who God says you are. I'm here to tell you that he has created you to be a blessing. And if you let him, you're going to bless your family and the people around you. If you let him, you are going to be the end of some generational sin that has plagued your family tree for years. And it will stop with you and your kids and grandkids and their kids won't have to deal with the same temptations and darknesses you face today. If you just believe that you are who God says you are, a daughter of the most high God, a son of the most high God, a warrior in his army against evil and death and darkness, you are going to bless the people around you. But first you have to learn to see yourself the way God sees you. And as far as God is concerned, you're good. You and him are good. You have been made righteous. Not through your own doing. Not because you've been on your best behavior. Not because you made it to church this morning. You've been made righteous because of Christ. This is so important, y'all. This is from Philippians 3, 8 through 9. He says, Paul says, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whose sake I've lost all things, I consider it garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from religion or the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Faith in Christ means trusting what God says about you and God through Jesus, through his life, death, and resurrection, he says you're worthy, you're worth the effort, you're worth the pain, you're worth death itself. To be known by you is worth it to God. God says you're courageous. God says you're capable of overcoming the ever-present darkness that surrounds you right now and every day of your life. You're capable of being an agent of light, not by the strength within you, but by the strength of Christ in you. No matter what struggle you face today, and I know there are many in this room, you feel weak, tired, worn out, and unsure of yourself, I'm telling you, no matter what darkness you face, you can overcome, not because of who you are, but because of who Christ is in you. If you trust that, you can overcome starting now. If you trust there is a deeper, greater purpose for your life, that it's never been up to you, that all that failing and falling and getting back up and falling again, is because you've only relied on your own strength. Just rely on Jesus. And he will overcome. All you have to do is claim the victory he's already won on your behalf. And that's as far as I can go with you. Now it's just a matter of a decision in your own heart to say yes to the purpose God made you for, to believe you're more than an accident, to believe that there's a purpose for you here. Say yes. Let's pray.
Jesus, keep working on us. I know we're on the fence. Some of us, we're just on the brink of a breakthrough. Lord, help us to trust you and not religion and not preachers and, and, and not churches, but just you. God, help us to let go of our pride and our fear for the sake of saying yes to this higher calling to be enlisted in this battle, this struggle against the evil and darkness around us. We want to be agents of light and hope, agents of Jesus and his love. So today we say yes, Lord, yes, in Jesus' name, amen.